Yes, well done. Okay, let's go through. Let's start at the beginning, and I'm just going to read the preparation for worship. We'll just kind of go through the, the whole scheme. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Who breaks the power of love and of sin and darkness? Mm -hmm. All right, so call to worship. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Please stand for our responsive call to worship from Revelation chapter 5. These are words of praise taken from God's throne room. Let's join our voices with those praising God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Good morning. This morning concludes our series, I believe, uh, in Isaiah during that time called Epiphany. Epiphany leading up to Lent, in which we'll be looking at Isaiah 53. Our passage this morning is taken from chapter 61, verses 1 to 9, where the servant, the anointed one, speaks for himself this time in response to what was said of him back in chapter 42. We won't take the time right now to read that, but if you haven't read it or you forgot it, I would suggest go back and read it again today uh, in order to see the connection. So would you pray with me before we ex examine God's Word this morning? Oh, Holy Father, Sovereign Lord, we need your spirit. So, Lord, pour out your spirit in fullness on us this morning. I ask, Lord, for myself that you, your spirit would lead every word that comes from my mouth in proclaiming your word. And, Father, that your spirit would apply your word to each heart and mind in a way that transforms for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So turning to Isaiah 61, 1 to 9, I'm calling this magnetic transforming grace. And it is a grace that basically resets everything. Starting at verse 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vindication of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This is the word of God. Amen. <clears throat> so this is the text as we saw earlier uh, read. Uh, this is the text that Jesus read that day in his hometown in Nazareth where he declared himself and his ministry as the fulfillment of it in Luke chapter 4. Now that leaves no doubt then by his use of it that this truly was about the Messiah. I don't know that there's a commentary, commentary that disagrees with that. And it gives us a picture of the purpose, the character, and the outcome of the ministry of Christ. It announces the sovereign Lord's outpouring of grace that not only rescues but also transforms with a transformation that is irresistible and is irresistibly magnetic from the inside out. We are drawn to it by His Word and by His Spirit that are inseparable. You cannot proclaim the Word of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God which is exactly what uh, this passage even starts with. Jesus expressed a summary of the same idea in response to John the Baptist 
who was in prison at the time, I think he did this for the sake of, and I think John the Baptist probably asked this question for the sake of his own disciples. And this, his answer in Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6, testifies to the fact that he is the one that Isaiah spoke of. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who are of leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the, new, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Then he adds, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Well, those in Nazareth were among those who did stumble over him. When he read it, he stopped halfway through verse 2. That's as far as he went. At the year of God's favor. But then later, after he sat down, he eventually called them out and let them, in the long run, place themselves in the rest of the verse, waiting for that day of vengeance themselves, proving where they stood. But for all who trust in him, his message is good news. The gospel pushes back the day of vengeance because God is patient. John 11, or excuse me, John 1, verses 11 and 12, points out what happened here in contrast to what is assured to us who trust in him. He came to his own homeland, yet his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, to those who put their trust in his person and power, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, Jesus again clarifies why he stopped in the beginning, in the middle of two, because what his ministry between his first coming and his second coming is about redemption and about rescue. John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. In Isaiah 61, Messiah Himself announced the purpose of the outpouring of God's Spirit on Him. It's very simply to honor those who acknowledge their hopeless condition with good news of such an abundance of grace that it vindicates God's justice as well as their faith in Him as their helper and healer. This sounds so much like the Beatitudes, really. See, he begins his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount by singling out the spiritually needy for special attention as those ready to receive the good news. The poor here, and there also in Matthew 5, 
according to nearly all commentators, include not only the physically poor, but those in spiritual poverty and know it. And we sang about that. Isaiah 66, 2 goes on and expresses God's heart this way. To clarify that point, the kind of person on whom I look with favor is the one with a poor and humble spirit who trembles at my word. We have a friend in San Diego, I think eventually he became a missionary, uh, minister in, in uh, Israel. Haven't kept up with him, don't know where he's at now. But uh, he, uh, his name is da- David Zaduk um, from Iran, Jewish from Iran. Probably a descendant of those who perhaps stayed in Persia, I don't know, or maybe returned, I don't know. He came to the United States as a student, he was in San Diego, and he was a faithful Jew, and he was in deep, deep despair because he felt the condemnation of God because as he pursued and gave his life to trying to keep the law of God, he discovered he couldn't do it perfectly, and he recognized that God required perfect obedience, and then where did that leave him? In hopelessness and despair. And it just so happened, <laughs> by God's grace, he met a couple of guys who shared the gospel with him, probably, I believe, took him to Isaiah and walked him through how this Jesus did exactly what he said he would do here for him. And when he tells that story, I mean, his face just lights up <laughs> because The burden was lifted. The despair was gone. The excitement and the thrill of knowing that the Messiah took his place, settled the debt, and gave him life. And he became a minister of that gospel. With the power of God's word, enabled by God's spirit, Christ breaks down for us in more detail the character of his purpose in proclaiming the gospel of grace. The sovereign Lord sent his son down to us with a message that heals and transforms to bind up the brokenhearted, To bind up is healing language. It's medical language. It's something that Mark would understand. It's doing spiritual surgery on the heart with the Word of God and how it can cut so precisely. The results in a heart that is fixed for eternity life-saving forever. 
To proclaim freedom to the captives and release of darkness for prisoners is to fulfill what was promised in Isaiah 49, verse 25. Indeed, this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of the mighty man will be rescued and taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. Rescue from the grip of the evil one. This is the promise of the gospel. The word of God preached is powerful enough to do what Jesus said needed to be done to plunder the strong man's house. He must first be bound. And that's what the gospel does. And that's what the gospel does. And that's what the the disciples experienced. The disciples, when they returned from their mission rejoicing, here was Jesus' response. While you were ministering, I watched Satan topple until he fell suddenly from heaven like lightning to the ground. That's the power of the gospel. And that's not all. Messiah proclaims the year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, it is the time for complete and lasting reconciliation. It's a reset for everything. Moving forward from now and forever. Immeasurable grace. Complete forgiveness. Once and for all. From this is the year of jubilee that is is like no other. That all of them in the past just represented as very temporary. But this one is forever. This is perfect restoration and every debt canceled. God canceled the debt that we could not pay. This is the grace to the uttermost. Sin and its guilt and slavery and misery are all put behind us. We are forever set free. Period. That is in stark contrast to the day of vengeance of God in the last half of the verse, which is swift, and it is against the evil that torments us. Even that is good news, because it means, as a better translation says, the day of vindication of our God. God vindicates His holy name with his justice displayed on the cross and his mercy on all of us who trust in his son who bore it. And we are vindicated because he proves us right in trusting him. And for the sake of all the elect, the day of vengeance is forestalled because God is patient. As Peter talks about in 2 Peter 2. Oh, the gospel is sweet. And its message is comfort and transformation for all who mourn from the misery of sin and downcast and despair. It lifts us up. Christ Jesus replaces all that with joy and praise because he rescues us from the oppression of the evil one. This garment language that is there in this text It illustrates 
They change in the dignity that God gives us. Because he singles us out for special attention. He is the one who gives us value. You know, one of the things that gives value to something, that gives worth to something, is what somebody is willing to pay for it. And you know what God was willing to pay for us. This is the inward transformation that testifies to the work of grace that puts God's glory on display in all who trust in Him. A new name. A new name is given to the meek whose hope is in the Lord alone. In verse 3, oaks of righteousness. And you know what oaks, I mean, massive strong trees. I mean, many of them are there for, who knows, thousands of years. Power, a display of sturdiness. This massive, enduring strength depends on the fact that it was God who planted it. God put it there, and that is a display of His righteousness. So our righteousness is found in Him because it was God that did this. And it was for his own splendor and for his glory and for his majesty. That's an incredible thing that his majesty is displayed in us who are redeemed. That he calls us oaks of righteousness. Paul said it. What God did in in 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made the one who knew no sin to become sin, uh, become a sin offering on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we might become the righteousness of God. The outcome, the outcome of all this starting in verse 4, is that the inward spiritual transformation produced by God's irresistible grace results in an outward transformation of a living faith so that God's redeemed become those who renew and restore, who become kingdom builders, the kingdom of God builders, disciple makers, disciple multipliers, church multipliers. Those, trans, those transformation, that's this, whose transformation is so visible that the grace given overflows and is magnetic. This is how he reaches the ends of the earth with the gospel. Reaches the ends of the earth with the gospel of grace that is seen in us and is magnetic enough to multiply itself. Zechariah 8.23 put it this way. Ten men from the nations, now do the math, ten men from the nations of every language every language There are a lot more languages. We're talking about every language, every people group, every 
every dialect. Do you know that there are more than 300 dialects in Mexico alone? Ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we know that God is with you. Would you pray that that would be the testimony, that that would be the impact of your life? And it all starts with what God did in each of our lives in the first place. With that last verse, he wraps it up and he takes it full circle. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Now, the rest of this message is going to focus on one word. I think it's important to close with a clear understanding that that last word used in this text gives us. The word blessed, as it was used, it was, it was, it was excuse me, it was understand, it was, a, yeah, let me get my words together here. As it was understood in ancient Hebrew, in which today has been often misinterpreted and therefore misused and has been tossed around and taken way too lightly and become trivialized. Now, when I dug deeper into it, it hit me like a thousand tons of bricks. I trembled. I literally trembled and shuddered. And it was brought to tears. It may not hit you the same way, but I hope it does because it will help you to truly grasp what the Messiah proclaimed about his purpose in this message and make the gospel all the more wonderful. We use the word to express God's blessing on us as in the benediction taken from number six that we often use. And we use it as worship and praise of God. Its meaning is actually the same in both instances. It's the same word. So if we take a moment and let it sink in, it should humble us. It should humble us to the very core of our being and cause us to be all the more overwhelmed by the greatness, by the beauty, the majesty of God's grace to us. This last word gives power to the whole text, and it should move us all the more to thanksgiving and praise. So here it is. First, I want to picture it in Christ and something he did, and then I'll define it. So when Jesus picked up a little child to bless in the presence of the disciples, that blessing actually began the moment he leaned down 
and bent his knee to pick the child up. Sorry. I was afraid this would happen. <laughs> Do you see what's going on here? The most basic meaning of the word bless. Let this sink in. Is simply kneel. Kneel. But can you even picture... Can you even picture that the sovereign God, the Lord Almighty, King of the universe, kneeled? To bless you means that God bent the knee to turn his face to you. That he condescends to us so much as to stoop down to us rather than stand over us and look down on us. To bless us is to honor us each with that kind of special attention that singles us out face to face. It gives new meaning to the Beatitudes that God bends his knee to give us his approving attention and assigns us value, value to him. And that's all that matters. That is the favor of God that Messiah proclaimed. That by itself is the beginning of a transformed life. That is the kind tenderness of God that truly sweetens grace and should put us in such awe of God that we cannot even put it into words. That's the kind of God who comes down to rescue the helpless and bring us to himself. And that's what people should see that sets us apart and should make them want to be in the same place. Pray with me. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for bending your knee and stooping down to go so far as to send your son to do that very thing, to take our place, as we sang earlier, so that we've been set free. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your kindness, for that loving kindness. And your tender heart to us. Oh, Father, help us not to take for granted the vastness and the greatness of your mercy and the beauty of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for giving us value because it was just, it just pleased you to do so. And we can't even understand why. It's just who you are. So we worship you.
Jesus' name.